Welcome to Cleary Gottlieb's Antitrust Review, a podcast focused on antitrust policy, practice, and enforcement around the world. In an increasingly complex and noisy world, we strive to provide insight, clarity, wisdom, and light. My name is Nick Levy, and I'll be your host today. My guest today has been one of the most influential and consequential figures in the European Commission for the past 30 years. He came to Brussels in 1992 after almost a decade at the French Ministry of Economy and Finance. Since then, he's been a leading figure in merger enforcement, was an architect of the European Commission's leniency program, coordinated antitrust policy for several years, and served in the private offices, the cabinets of three European commissioners, Carol Van Miet, Michel Barnier, and Nelly Cruz. After five years as the Director General for Financial Stability, Financial Services, and Capital Markets Union during the financial crisis, he returned to his home and became Director General of DG Competition in January 2020. An extraordinary figure in our world, I'm delighted to welcome Olivier Gesson. Olivier, you're a keen observer of the European project, and you'll know well the old adage that Europe is made in crises. We've had no shortage of crises over the past decade, the financial crisis, Brexit, the war in Ukraine, COVID. How do you think the European institutions are bearing up? And what do you think the future holds? Have we reached the limits of integration? Or do you think we're going to see ever closer integration over the next decade? Well, thank you, Nick. Thank you for the nice introduction. And um, and thank you for, for, for this question. My view, I mean, you're right. I mean, we we have experienced in the last 15 years, three times what each time was meant to be a crisis of the century. So that's a lot of centuries in just 15 years. Of course, um, it was very existential crisis each of the times, and um, it forced Europe to move forward. And also we drew the lessons of the previous crisis in the next one. I mean, the financial crisis, is something that we Europe had nothing to do with in, in the root causes of it, uh, but we were very good in uh, in transforming it into a euro crisis, uh, and that was a, a man-made disaster, entirely European-made, uh, because we were unable to deal with a relatively small problem uh, in Cyprus and Greece, uh, uh, so that we made it through procrastination, anti-decision complexities, in the end of the day, a much bigger and much more costly issue that it should have ever been. And we we, we drew the lessons from it in the COVID crisis. And in particular, uh, I think it's, it's time to pay tribute to Mrs. Merkel, uh, because she understood why uh, the uh, German attitude in the financial crisis was not conducive to the best possible result, and she, she completely took the problem from a different angle in the COVID crisis. And that led for the first time to basically the EU issuing debt, which has long been resisted, uh, and using that money with, with, a, with an allocation key based on solidarity and needs and not some kind of just return. And that's a huge leap. And now with the energy crisis, we see that, I mean... We're building every day new solidarity instruments. So, I mean, you know, it's a lieu commun to say that uh, the, the Europe is progressing 
basically when we are in crisis, but that's very, very true. Uh, so we have progressed a lot in terms of uh, integration, and we have progressed a lot also, and maybe mainly in terms of member states' understanding and the pursuit of their individual optimum within the uh, uh, EU is never conducive to uh, the optimum for the EU. Uh, so therefore, they're better off to go for their second best, which is the general interest of the Eurozone or of the EU, uh, that doesn't maximize entirely their own utility, but that's better than trying to pursue each of them individual optimum, which leads usually to a collective disaster. And that's a very cool, very classical game theory thing. And uh, after three crises, I think what is clear is that they got it. And that's good news. Now, does that mean we it's stable? No, I mean, we, we are always, you know, the EU is like is like a cyclist. Uh, it, it's fine as long as you cycle. If you stop, you fall. Uh, or otherwise, we're in the middle of the river. And it's very, very costly to go back on the banks we're coming from. Uh, so the most reasonable thing is finish finished crossing the river. And there, there is a number of things that remains to be done. It's, for example, at some point, uh, member states will need to draw the lessons of all the integration leaps we've been doing in terms of what does it mean for the, the union budget. Can we really continue to work with this level of new tools and integration with a budget that is below 1% of the GDP? Well, we know from all the international studies that below 3%, actually a federal budget doesn't make any difference. So there is a lot to come in my view, but as usual, there will be a time lag. Uh, and as usual, uh, when the crisis will be less acute, you will see people withdrawing uh, a little bit. But what is what what has happened has happened, and I think it will change the EU for a long time. So in short, yes, uh, it's not the end. And we have, in my view, very little other choice but to continue to integrate. So let's turn to competition policy, which has been your and my beat for the past 30 years. It seems to me we're at a fascinating inflection point with the established consensus that is dominated for so long, subject to an array of different critiques including in particular, as you know, that merger control may have been too permissive and that agencies, at least in some jurisdictions, may have allowed certain markets to become too concentrated. We've seen in the recent past agency heads in a number of countries, including in particular the US, the UK, Germany and Australia, criticizing their predecessors' records, and in some cases, at least by implication, the records of others. So what's your view? Do you think the European Commission has got it right in merger control? Should you be challenging more deals? Or do you think you have the balance right? A couple of things. First, it's true. Industries have become more concentrated pretty much all over the globe over the last 20 years. Secondly, if you look at, at least at the advanced economy, uh, this is less true in Europe than elsewhere. Thirdly, should we take pride of it to say, well, we've got it right and the major control was clearly superior than the others? Well, I'm not so sure because there is no evidence or literature for that purpose that shows that uh, this increasing concentration level would be in any way correlated to past competition enforcement. Uh, and that's true for us and that's true for the US and that's true everywhere. So 
It, it might be that it played a marginal role, but I mean, the, the driving factors clearly are elsewhere and are multiples. Uh, profound trends such as digitization, global market integration uh, have been a lot more powerful uh, than, than whatever degree of uh, toughness and merger control will ever be. So I think that, uh, that, that the, the situation so is difficult to draw this conclusion, but of course it, it prompts people like me and my colleagues in the US and others to ask themselves uh, where we're right. And when I look at uh, our enforcement record and when I look at the principles that guide us, I think it's fair to say that we've always been vigilant, uh, in particular in already concentrated markets where it is clear that the further concentration may hamper competition. And uh, we've been vigilant throughout the last 20 years, I think in quite a steady way. And if I look at the recent track record of the commission, I see, and I don't want to compare it with the track records of others, but uh, maybe some others could do. Uh, well, let's take the last two years, for example, we prohibited the uh, Hyundai Daewoo, uh, you know, where it was found that the merger would have led to the creation of dominant position on an already very concentrated market worldwide for the construction of large energy carriers. And frankly, these days it's not any commodity, large energy carriers. So uh, I think it's uh, it's quite important. Um, and uh, and there was a high number of uh, concentrations which were abandoned at the end of phase two. Uh, Canada Transat. AEG, Air Europa, Fincantieri, Chantier de l'Atlantique. Um, that was last year, but this year as well. Uh, also in already quite consolidated market, Kingspan Trimo, Grena Rectisol, or NVIDIA Arm. And it's not mystery that if they had not been abandoned, they were on their way to, uh, to a prohibition. And, and last but not least, uh, only a few weeks ago, we prohibited in a mineral grail. So I'm, I'm not sure that one can say, at least in all jurisdiction, merger control should be tougher. Actually, if this was the case, um, that means we would have to toughen our standard for review, um, which I'm not, first of all, I'm not sure we should. And secondly, I'm not sure uh, the judges would agree to. So I don't want to go into complacency, but, uh, but I, I think we're fine. Thanks, Olivier. I think you make a fair point. Some compare the number of transactions that the European Commission has prohibited with the number of transactions that, let's say, the CMA has prohibited. But if you look at the number of transactions that have been withdrawn to avoid prohibition, in addition to those that have actually been blocked, the comparison is not nearly as stark as perhaps people might think. I think, too, you make a good point about strong judicial review. It's obviously something that you and the US agencies are subject to. And one could debate whether the CMA is subject to the same kind of judicial review. But if one looks starkly at the figures, the Competition Appeals Tribunal in the UK has generally endorsed almost all of the CMA's prohibition decisions in the merger field, whereas you've had a more checkered record. I, I, I don't comment on others, as you know, as a rule, but, uh, but it's, it's fair to say that, um, well, for example, in the EU, we cannot, and I think it's fair, prohibit a transaction. Uh, where we have a structural remedy and that structural remedy came back with a positive market test. There's no way we can we can motivate a prohibition. And that was, for example, Cargotech. So 
I don't dispute why the CMA in that case prohibited it, uh, but certainly with our legal standards and our legal scrutiny standards, that's not possible in the EU. And I think it's a good thing. At least what the, the lawyers representing the companies tell me is that in the UK, if I understood well, they did not they did not challenge the decision of the CMA and they didn't do it because they didn't think they had any chance to win a challenge. And uh, again, it's not for me to comment on that. Thank you, Olivier. So let me turn to a different critique that you and I have heard at various times over the past 30 years, that the European Commission has been too inflexible and that merger control should be used to facilitate the establishment of European or national champions. Now, you and your predecessors have been steadfast in your view that it would be a mistake to politicize enforcement and to flex the rules to allow national or European champions to be created, notwithstanding the fact that they may harm competition. You've recently launched a consultation that bears at least in part on this topic. Do you think the European Commission's views are likely to evolve or change? Well, if you want the short version, no, uh, but I can elaborate. Uh, <laughs> um, well, it's true. Huh? We, have, we have published for Thunder an economic study on the importance of competition in the internal market to European export. Uh, um, uh, uh, because this is something we want to know. And it's always better to have facts when you have a debate. Uh, but I, I doubt that the end report will change our view. And our view is what is best for the European competitiveness is a strong and effective EU competition policy. What do I mean by strong and effective? I mean that it is free from political interference, respectful of uh, the rule of law, and in particular, because the same ones that are calling for a softer or more flexible enforcement uh, when it comes to intra-EU mergers, are also calling for a much tougher standard when it's about non-EU firm mergers. That is something that's just impossible. That is not fair. That is not respectful of a state of law, and that is not even our interest. Uh, so that will not happen in a nutshell. So what what we think is that, and we've always thought that, and we're not the only ones in the world, I've never seen a sprinter winning the 100 meters in the Olympics by carefully avoiding to meet any competitors for the previous four years. So the truth is, that competition sharpens you. It makes you more effective. It makes you more cost-effective. It, make it makes you more innovative. And this is amply documented in facts and literature. So shielding or would-be champions from uh, effective competition from within or outside Europe would be a mistake. So that, that I think is all clear, steady and considered view. So. Does that mean that we take issue with successful companies because of their size? No, we don't, and we never have. We also need big companies in Europe and elsewhere. Um, the, the best example for me is the vaccines against COVID. I mean, we needed the small ones because there was the innovators that brought these new vaccines terribly effective within a few months. And we need the big ones, because without the big ones, we would never have been able to deploy it by billion on the entire planet. So we, we, do need, we do need both. But what we need is that markets remain contestable. Thanks, Olivier, for that. 
A quick question, if I may, on the jurisdictional scope of the merger regulation. As you know well, there have been debates over the years about whether to change the thresholds to allow the merger regulation to apply to non-controlling minority shareholdings or to introduce transaction value tests of, as some member states have done. In the last year, the Commission has introduced a new policy on Article 22 of the merger regulation that allows or indeed encourages national competition authorities to refer transactions to Brussels that don't meet their own national thresholds. That measure has proven fairly controversial. Some say it's a sledgehammer to crack a nut, while others, I think, have probably said it's going to be used in only relatively rare circumstances. Do you have any thoughts on this provision? We, of course, have a court judgment that endorses the Commission policy, so we're into a new area, but I'd be interested in your thoughts on how often you see this provision being used. Well, we're awaiting the uh, the ruling of the higher court, of course. Um, so for as long as the Court of Justice has not pronounced itself, let's see. But that's right, the General Court, uh, in what is my view, quite convincing ruling, uh, um, validated or thesis. Well, the thesis is not terribly complete. It's always existed. I mean, and, uh, for, for those that you and I are so old enough to remember, uh, the reason why there is an Article 22 is for member states to be able to refer cases for which they have no jurisdiction. Otherwise, Article 22 would simply not be part of the merger regulation. So in a way, it was a no-brainer that indeed it was, it, was, it was there. The thing is, for a very long time, the EU said, yes, member states, you can do it, but you shouldn't. And the reason is that the, the balance of disadvantages and advantages was, in our view, going the wrong way because it was before digitization. It was before we've seen all these uh, killing acquisitions in pharma. So we thought, the, the, I mean, again, that, that was, that was a, a high price to pay for, for little reward. The world has changed. Uh, Illumina Grail is a good example. Uh, we need to be able to review this type of cases. They're limited in numbers. You know, ever since Mrs. Vestager announced that we have changed the recommendation to member states, which was two years ago, exactly two years ago, in September, September 2020, uh, we have monitored the market together with the member states. And the only one case we have decided to take is Illumina Grail. So I cannot promise there will be only one case every two years forever. Uh, uh, and it's as usual in these things. You may have cases with three cases, uh, years with three cases and years with zero. Uh, but we don't want to make it, and we couldn't even if we wanted for sheer resources issues, uh, make it a, a huge uh, uh, instrument that would bring us masses of cases. Last consideration, uh, which is, in my view, uh, important is what would have been the counterfactual? What was the other solution to be able to take these cases that are potentially hugely detrimental to competition, but for which there is very little or zero turnover? And uh, frankly, to find a solution that is less burdensome on the industry than simply changing the recommendation of Article 22 is hard to see. So I think this is the the way that allows us to be able to review these cases that are potentially very detrimental while minimizing the burden on the industry. Even if there is still a burden, because you need to ask yourself, 
when you're completing a transaction, okay, well, am I going to monopolize this market? And if yes, maybe I should have a chat with uh, either my national competition authority or, 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 or the GCOMP. Thank you, Olivier. Let me turn now to antitrust enforcement. You were one of the architects of the commission's leniency program, and you're also a keen advocate of damages actions that follow cartel decisions. It's said by some, as you know, that the specter of such actions has chilled companies' readiness to apply for leniency. And as a result, that some cartels may be going undetected. So what's your view? Do you think the program should be changed? Well, the, the first thing I want to say, Nick, is that so far, and again this year, the leniency program is an important tool in cartel enforcement. And it still represents a considerable part of our cartel decisions. We have uh, very recently, last week, launched a new two-way versions of our e-leniency tool, which now allows not only applicants to efficiently and securely submit leniency application online, so they don't have to come anymore, and uh, et cetera, et cetera, but also to securely access corporate statements and other leniency ma material from remote computers. So we were striving to continue to keep the tool fresh and, and updated. Well, that said, of course, I was actually involved in the first leniency program in 1996, uh, and I was actually drafting the second one, although the current one in 2000, and I think it was seven, alongside the, 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 the sentencing guidelines, actually. Um, and the, the world has changed. We face a more complex enforcement environment. Companies have sophisticated compared to when the leniency program was introduced. So you refer to the damages directive. Um, I think it's good that the damages directive has opened the possibility to bring damages actions in member states. And we have actually seen a wave of follow-up uh, actions in trucks, for example. And it's always an issue finding a balance between public and private enforcement. And of course, it's important. And this is why the damages action directive includes protections uh, for leniency applicants uh, in order to try to avoid any chilling effect on leniency applications. So should this be reviewed? Is this the source of a would-be less effectiveness of uh, leniency programs? Well, we review anyway. Uh, should it be revised? I'm not sure. Um, the, the jury is still out, uh, and uh, we're speaking to the business community and etc. But what I I see is, do, did we see a surge of leniency application when the U.S. decided to detribble? We didn't. So I think you you need to have, be a bit more granular, and this is what we're trying to do. Uh, Maya Jaspers and the colleagues in the cartel directorate at the moment studying. What are the trends in international cartel leniency applications? In EU-only cartel leniency applications and in national member states leniency application. And I think if you fail to make this granular, more granular analysis, you miss something. Because the, the driving forces for international cartel leniency applications are completely different. For one reason is that then we're intertwined with at least the US. Because nobody in his right mind will report in one jurisdiction and not the other. So what they do affects us, what we do affect them. And issues like chances to be detected anyway. So how good are we with 
ex officio uh, in a world that is dominated by digital techniques uh, is very important. How predictable are we in each or, uh, our jurisdictions? And that goes into very technical things it's like how easy to get a marker, how long the marker, uh, what is the benchmark for qualifying for immunity? Uh, and uh, depending on how these things are handled in the various jurisdictions, it's sufficient that it doesn't work well in one for the old process to be hampered in all. So the dynamics to be considered, and that's why we are in constant discussion and interaction with our friends in the US in particular, but also elsewhere, in order to try to get the overall system that is the most incentive one. Now, when you go into the no implication outside of Europe type of cartels is different because it's just about us and us. So, but the parameter is not very different. How predictable are we? How likely is it that you detect it if you don't confess? How are you exposed? If you take into account the likelihood of uh, follow-up uh, uh, damages actions, etc. all this is relevant, but it's, it's a different set of variables than in international cartels. And, and a good benchmark is to see how it goes in member states. And, uh, and I hear that number of member states has flows of leniency applications for strictly national cartels. So it's a bit more complicated than that, <laughs> as usual in life. Another critique of enforcement practice at the European level, as you know well, is that antitrust cases can take too long. You've undertaken a review of the procedural rules. And of course, you have to take account of the possibility of judicial review. But if you were king for a day, what would your ideal system look like? And what sort of changes do you think you would make to speed things up? Well, I have the chance to be vice king. Uh, so... <laughs> and vice king for several days. Or, or prime minister. Uh, <laughs> anyway, let me tell you. Uh, first of all, why is it that it is long? For... For two men, I mean, it's not, and I think there's nobody has a shade of doubt anywhere in private practice or elsewhere in the commission or in the NCS is not because people in DigiComp are taking it easy, uh, are working short hours and, uh, and, 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 not, and not doing the job as diligently as they should. So they're working extremely long hours and there is a, usually a huge discrepancy of the forces in cases, I mean, as you know it, I mean, in particular in the big cases, and in particular the big digital cases, you face formidable powers uh, that can buy everything money can buy. The best lawyers in armies, the best economics in armies, the best lobbyists in armies. Uh, and uh, we're facing all these guys. But sometimes, I mean, we, we make the head count and we count more than 100 people advising the firm on the other side, and we have our five guys case team. And guess what? Three years after they take a decision that is confirmed by the court. It's miraculous. And I want to pay them tribute for that. Now, it is complicated. And rightly, in my view, rights of defense have progressed over the years. Rights of defense today are not at all. They're light years from what they were in the 90s. And it's good, but it opens possibilities to smart lawyers like you, Nick, to delay the process when it's the interest of the party, because the dynamics of it, I mean, the, the game theory thing is like this. In a merger, your, your interest is to help us to go as quick as possible. You're very effective in that. 
But in an antitrust investigation, your interest is to delay us, and you're very effective at that as well. It's not meant to be a criticism. That's the game, but that's certainly a key reason why it takes time. And you can you can see proof of it when you look at Broadcom, because basically when you manage to issue an interim order, you change completely the incentive of the defendants from delaying it as much as you can to, to, to fasten it as much as you can. Broadcom was solved in a year. Remarkable for an antitrust case of this complexity. Why? Because they had the kind of incentives they usually have in merger control. And guess what? It gave the, it gave the same results. So what can we do to be more effective? There is a limit. I mean, we don't intend to lower rights of defense. I think even if we intended to, we would not be followed by the court. So that's out of uh, the question. So what are the possibilities? That's one of the reasons why we have launched the review of Regulation 1 and, uh, and the implementing reg. It's a long-term project. It will take time to, but after 20 years, I think it's fair to have a look at how it worked and what can we improve. Uh, that is, uh, is something we were dedicated quite some work on. My personal view is that Regulation 1 has worked well, frankly, uh, and even I would say very well. But there are, of course, some areas where there is probably scope for improving. Inspection powers, for example, to make it short, ECN Plus gave a number of new powers to the member states. But because, of course, directives do not apply to the European Commission, it happens that Digicom doesn't have this power. It seems to me to be a no-brainer that we should be on par. And uh, if it was necessary to equip the member states with these powers, probably it's necessary to equip Digicom. So that's uh, uh, that's something. The, the second thing is, you know, where we lose a lot of time, as you know, is, is in access to file and uh, the provision of uh, uh, of information to uh, to other parties in the case. And that's an unlimited source of delays for, 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 for lawyers that want to delay the investigation. You're picky on the so-called or would-be trade secrets, etc. We need to be better in that. Uh, we need, in my view, uh, but that's very personal views and very extreme, but on what I have observed, we need to, to generalize and maybe make mandatory uh, confidentiality rings. And the, the lawyers have access to everything and they are tasked with filtering for their clients, uh, but so that we, we get out of this endless ping pong, uh, which opens the possibility to delay very considerable investigations. So maybe we need to adapt, but that's a very delicate subject, interim measures powers. Uh, for the time being, super, super restrictive. I understand why, but we saw that actually when you have to wait uh, for the conclusion of the investigation to deploy your measure, it goes faster. So maybe we should draw some conclusions from this and uh, uh, subject to the views of the judges, of course, uh, see whether we can, we can better things there. So there are a number of things that, that can be done, but essentially my message is, you know, and in, that is in particular true in, in digital, and that's the very reason why we have the DMA. In markets where you have large and, and rapid network effects, it always pays off to delay the investigation because it gives the time to your anti-competitive practice, if it is an anti-competitive practice, to kill competitors. And uh, then providing the benefits from monopolizations 
are higher than any amount of fine we can impose, you're better off doing it. And therefore your interest is to slow down. Thank you, Olivier. You mentioned the Digital Markets Act. Now we're clearly in for a fascinating period in which regulation operates alongside enforcement of the antitrust rules and one in which the European Commission operates in parallel with national agencies in Europe and with other agencies around the world. A couple of related questions. Do you think the Digital Markets Act is going to do away with the need for individual cases? And secondly, how are you going to ensure consistent application of the rules across Europe and across the world? I suspect you have two hours for the rest of the podcast with these questions. So uh, how are we going to ensure well, first of all, it's complicated, of course, because there are regulatory aspects that are important. So it's not only the consistency with the antitrust rule, which is important, but it's also with the rest of the regulatory framework. So, uh, and that's the reason why we enforce jointly with our colleagues and friends in DigiConnect. Uh, but the uh, the center of gravity has been put in DigiConf because this is where the investigative techniques will be to be deployed. And this is where these skills are. This is also where we have already the infrastructure and the logistics, you know, the, uh, the register, uh, the document handling management system, all of this. I mean, we can pretty much duplicate what we already have in mergers and in antitrust, customize it. So it's cost effective uh, uh, to do it in that way. And it's also where you can coordinate with the member states, because you're right, and that will lead me to your second question. What is going to be an infringement to the DMA? What is going to be not an infringement of the DMA, but something we don't like, and uh, that may still fall under Article, Article 102? Where are the limits of the anti-circumvention mechanism in the DMA? Uh, all this needs to be tested. Uh, what will fall ultimately under the DMA, what will fall under 101, 102, and what will fall under national legislations, be them antitrust or specific 19A-like legislations. All of this will need to be tested. So what that paves the way for is, in my view, a completely new way of cooperating within the European Competition Network. Because with this setting that I just described, you cannot have the traditional, you know, what you have in 101, the commission on top that uh, distributes text back cases, etc. That's not the way it will work. That's not the way it should work. I mean, the truth is that when we will start an investigation into a practice, I guess it will be complicated to tell exactly whether you will find an infringement to the DMA, is a convention of the DMA, or something that is smarter than a circumvention, therefore you need to capture under 102, um, whether it would be more effective because, for example, it's deployed only in German, German language to take it with 19A and, uh, and competition law at national level. We will need to be able to design jointly with the colleagues an enforcement strategy for each of these cases. And we will be able to do this probably not so much at inception but after a preliminary investigation. And that's the reason why we have foreseen that procedurally DMA investigations will be governed by the same rules as antitrust, so that we can transfer the evidence as we do in 101, 102. Not only from member states to the commission and the other way around, but from DMA files to 102 and the other way around. Um, so 
that, that's a fluid situation, but that will keep us busy and that will make it very interesting in terms of enforcement challenge. I'd like to turn now to your current role, Director General of DG Competition. You've obviously spent a long time in DG Comp, so you knew what you were taking on. But when you accepted the job, did you have an agenda? Did you have some priorities? And if I can be so bold, how do you think you're doing? <laughs> well, thanks. I didn't think I would ever come back. You know, well, first of all, I was pretty happy doing, doing financial stability and financial uh, regulation during the worst financial crisis ever was tiring, exhausting, but fascinating and so interesting. Uh, and, um, and I had just launched the EU taxonomy uh, and, uh, and that was really my pet project. And I, <laughs> so that was really, uh, uh, I, I was not even thinking about it because I knew uh, my friend Johannes was happy where he was and uh, the chances that he would step down in any material time for me to be able to go back home was remote. So I had stopped thinking about it. And I couldn't believe it myself because, of course, my I never really saw myself outside of DigiComp. I mean, I, I ended up doing financial regulation by accident. I mean, I had been a member of uh, for a short time, for one year of, of the first cabinet of Mr. Barnier. And I was extremely surprised when he came back and asked me to lead his cabinet in a field that I had not worked on ever since university. And the only thing I knew about was that it was widely different from what it was when I studied it in the university. But then I, I made the investment, loved it, uh, met Mrs. Vestager uh, when she was uh, the president of the council uh, during a key time in our response to the financial crisis and made an excellent job as the finance minister for Denmark. And that, that was it. So I I was director general for four and something years in FISMA and starting to think, okay, well, maybe what do I want to do next? And I was thinking, well, I would love to do environmental climate. Uh, and then Germany had the great idea to appoint uh, Johannes Leitenberger as a judge in the court. So um, I was completely unexpected to me. I was very happy for him for many reasons. I mean, I, I know in many ways it was his dream job and he's uh, such an incredible lawyer. Uh, I knew he would be excellent at that. I knew also for family reasons, he, it, was, it was good for him. So I was very happy for him, but I, I still didn't really see it coming. Um, so when, uh, when Mrs. Vesher called me to have a coffee, and we had several coffee before she took her decision, uh, although we knew each other already. Um, we discussed intensively how we saw the job, uh, the strategy, and then, then, then one day she told me, you're in. And I, I you know, they had this impression to come back home. I've been spending 20 years of my life in DigiComp. It's home. It's where I'm uh, kind of administratively born. I'm born in the merger task force which was the most extraordinary thing you can ever think of, is 20 people, 20, no more, incredible brains, Dietrich Kleeman, uh, Emil Police, Laurie Evans. I, mean, I don't want to quote them all because uh, I, I will be unjust to some. Karen Williams. Um, what do you think of the, the concentration of brains and all this 
super flat because we had no choice. I mean, we had a month to take decisions on things we had no idea. Each problem was a new problem on things that are laughable today, undertaking concern, control. Uh, all these things are dealt with in a few minutes. Uh, in these days, it was the big problems. We would brainstorm for hours. And I was so impressed. And I was so impressed that uh, Colin Ababri, uh, the founder of the Major Task Force, was a colonel of the British Army and put together the flattest organization I've ever seen. That bluffed me. And uh, I don't tell you this just to tell you about my wonderful life, but because it's important because this is who we are. The Major Task Force was transformational in the DNA of the whole DigiCon. And soon the rest of us became also flatter. Even today, I mean, at exception, when we work on the, on the theories of harm, the narrative of the case, the investigation directions, the director general may well be there in the middle of the rest, and he participates to the discussion as any other case handler, and is given the floor when he's given the floor, and he has to shut up if he has, was not given the floor. And, uh, and if he doesn't have the best argument, we simply don't do it. And it's so effective. Because, of course, when it reaches me at, at the end in the form of recommendations to the commissioner, the, the thing is done already. And uh, pulling brains together with no authority argument is so powerful when you have little time, little resources, a huge number of things to do, which are very complex. So this is where we are, and this is why I was so keen coming back. Um, to do what? Well, first of all, to make sure we keep on like this. So, it, because it's a, it's a question of structure, but it's a question of agency more than anything. So you need to have people that have this culture. You need to maintain this culture. We have a huge turnover, you know. When, since I came in two and a half year ago, a quarter of the people at DigiConf have changed. So you need to carry them on into this culture. And it doesn't work just by itself. You need to, to, to create maintain better information networks because of course the rule for these things to work is that everybody has access to the information otherwise if you create the symmetries of information it doesn't work anymore knowledge networks as well everybody has to be on top of the knowledge so you need to spread it uh, so all this is the uh, unseen part of the work of a director general for competition. It's not only about fancy cases and uh, shining on, uh, on the various conferences around the world. It's mainly about making this bloody machinery work because this is, you cannot separate the machinery from who, you, who we are. So my first objective was this, make sure it's still fit for purpose, as flat as it can be, as effective as it can be. And it's also the reason why people are happy to work in DigiCon. Because of course, if you think about it, we're slightly more competitive than the rest of the, of the commission. And I like to say slightly better on average, uh, but we, we have no more promotion rates and we have no more jobs in management. So that means comparatively the same individual will go slowly, more slowly in DigiCon than elsewhere in the commission. And yet we have the best. And there is a reason for that. That is that they love what they do and they know that what they do individually matters. That if they come with the best theory of harm, if they work their ass off and, and it's 
really structured, they will make it up to the commissioner, to the decision, and to the court of justice. And this is their thing. And that's so important. So that's the first thing. The second thing, I learned something from, from Karel van Meert, who's very much uh, in work terms, my dad. And that is that competition is not an end. It's a tool. Nobody wants to have competition for the sake of it. You want to have competition for what it achieves. And the second thing is that competition policy is a policy. And you can have a lot of different policies with the same law. Uh, a good standard of law, of law, you don't need to change it each time you want to change policy. You have the standard of law and you can deploy a wide variety of, the, of policies. And the third thing he taught me is that therefore competition policy, of course, has its specificities. And of course, because it's quasi-judicial, you, you need to protect the integrity of the case process. But as a policy, it's not different from any policies of the EU. It needs to be put to the extent it respects the core mandate of protecting consumer welfare. It needs to be put to the service of the wider policy objectives, decarbonation, resilience, also digitization, what have you. To the extent you still do the job of protecting consumer welfare, you must help reaching and certainly not standing in the way of these broader objectives. And uh, that's that's a discussion we have had with Ms. Vestaya when, uh, when she hired me, and that's a clear mandate I have. Uh, and uh, you can see that in a number of things, in particular in the recent uh, horizontal uh, guidelines, for example. So that's it. And, um, and for the rest, we take the cases one after the other. Thank you, Olivier. I'm sure you're right that when the history of European competition law enforcement gets to be written, there'll be a chapter on the role of the merger task force in overseeing and propelling the introduction of the merger regulation with such success and indirectly helping to modernize enforcement of antitrust enforcement that together ensured the European Commission's place at the top table of agencies around the world. You said Carol Van Mitt was like your father, so Leon Britton was like mine. And I remember well his time as the first competition commissioner when the merger regulation came into force. So to end, Olivier, a couple of quick fire questions. Firstly, what's your proudest achievement and your greatest regret? Uh, my proudest achievement is, uh, is when we have adopted my, my third kid in China. My, my deepest regrets, I, I have refused to my wife to adopt a fourth one. <laughs> no, I, I was saying what I'm trying to convey by this answer is that there is a, light else, a, a life outside of competition policy, even, even when you're director general for competition. Now, that's not an answer we get often. And my final question, is there one thing you can tell us about yourself that's not widely known? The way I see myself, I'm a far farmer from southwest France that used to play rugby and still likes it. Um, so I don't do subtle. I'm pretty unsophisticated. Um, I like straight. But what you don't know about me, uh, well, few people know that uh, I have co-founded uh, 25 years ago, a bit more than 25 years ago, a charity in Brussels that is now employing 70 professionals and is providing uh, uh, technical care in the form of chemotherapies and uh, also compassionate care 
to both uh, adults and children uh, for cancer treatment. And, uh, and that's my second job when I'm not uh, directing DG competition. Olivier, thank you very, very much for a fascinating podcast. It's been a great personal and professional pleasure to have known you over the last 30 years, to have worked alongside you, sometimes on the same side of the table, sometimes on the opposite side of the table. It's really been an extraordinary ride as enforcement has evolved over the past 30 years. So thank you for that. Well, sometime on the same side, Nick, because uh, um, you, you, you have also represented complainants. <laughs> yes, indeed. We're all trying to do the right thing in the best possible way. Thank you, Olivier, for this podcast, for your candor and your insights. I thought it was absolutely fascinating. Thank you to everyone for listening to this podcast. We look forward to welcoming you to the next edition soon.